titled today's sermon, A Matter of the Heart. A Matter of the Heart. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 57, verses 14 through 21. As you read through the book of Isaiah, it's 66 chapters long. Some say it's like a miniature Bible because the, the first 39 books are dealing with a lot of um, God saying, hey, my wayward people, judgment's going to come upon you. Uh, you're not turning back to me. Your hearts are rebellious. You need to return to me, but you're not. So here's the judgment that's going to come. And then the, the last 27 chapters largely deal with uh, the hope of restoration that would come after uh, God's judgment. The people of Isaiah's day, their hearts were becoming so hard towards the Lord. We'll see at the beginning of Isaiah that God basically is getting to the point where he's, he's kind of like, a, like we would do throwing up his hand saying, there's nothing else I can do with you. There's nothing else left but just to judge you and to allow the pressure of that judgment to hopefully get your attention to return your heart to me. So really what God is desiring of his people is, is a heart issue. That our hearts would be soft towards him, that our ears would be quick to listen to the voice of his spirit, that our wills would be quick to obey a heart after God is what he's looking for in his people. And that's what the people of Isaiah's day were wrestling with. If you pick up at verse 14, it says, and one shall say, Isaiah 57, 14, and one shall say, heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. As I was reading that this week and preparing, I just couldn't help but laugh as I looked outside, and I had chosen this passage weeks ago, uh, talking about we need to heap it up and prepare the way, remove the stumbling blocks. As I looked at the roads outside and the heaps of snow and ice and needing to make a way so that you could just get around town. And that's really what Isaiah is talking about here is remove those things that are in the way, spiritually speaking, from following the Lord. Where he says, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. When you look at that image of stumbling block in Scripture, he's speaking there of sin. And there are passages in Ezekiel and other places where he speaks of, uh, God speaks of specific stumbling blocks. But here it's, it's more general. He, he is speaking of the backslider here, so I guess you could be a little bit specific in that, those who turn back. But it's saying, look, prepare the way. Get, get the sin out of the way. Prepare to run the race that God has set before you prepare to receive what God is wanting to do in your heart. This language is a lot like at the end of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And Malachi ends with a call for the people to prepare themselves for the day of the Lord. And that God would send a messenger before his servant that would prepare the hearts of people to turn their hearts back to the Lord. And then you see John the Baptist step on the scene and he was calling people to repent for the day of the Lord was at hand to prepare themselves to receive the king. And then Jesus steps on the scene and his message was repent. The day of the Lord is at hand. Hey, it's time. The time is now. Remove those things that hinder you and follow me. There's a sense of responsibility there that God is not calling us to be passive about sin but to be active in removing those things 
from our lives by His grace and the power of His Spirit that hinder our walk with Him. We're to be active in removing those things. And then verse 15, it says, For thus says the high and lofty one. Look at the way God has described here. I just love this verse. The high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. Do you realize that time is a creation of God? God dwells beyond time and eternity. He sees the beginning and the end the same, which we can't even really understand what that means. Because we are created within the constraints of time. So for us to even really fathom eternity is beyond our capability. But God is dwelling in eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. There's so much going on in this verse. It's similar to Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5 that I just read earlier when Isaiah has this vision of God and he's caught up in the throne room and he sees the glory of God, the one that is high and lifted up. But where it says that his name is holy, I mean, he's the high and lofty one. He, he inhabits eternity whose name is holy. Not just that he is holy, but his name is holy. The Hebrew word that we translate as holy here is kadosh, and, that, and that's usually what is translated as holy. But some of the other ways it's translated, just to help you understand this concept of holy, is it's also translated as commanding of respect, uh, awesome, singled out, or consecrated for. So here's the picture. It's God is the high and lofty one. He's exalted over all. He dwells in eternity, so that's different as well. And his name is holy. And the sense is he is completely other than us in ways that we can't even begin to fathom this side of heaven. Holiness is, is God's complete other than, otherness than, than we are. It's kind of like if you see something, some of the other definitions I said before, uh, commanding respect, awesome, singled out, consecrated for, or set aside. It's kind of like if you see something that is just completely different than all of the surroundings that it is found in. And you go, wow, this is really different. A treasure hidden in the field. Wow, this is really different. It's set apart from everything else. That's an idea of what it means for God to be holy. It's not that God is just a little bit better than his creation. God is completely other than his creation. He is holy. He is set apart. He is completely different. He is the high and lofty one whose name is holy. And he says, I dwell in a high and holy place. And what's interesting is the contrast here. Okay, so he's the high and lofty one who dwells in eternity. He dwells in this high and holy place, right? But then it says, with who? With him who has a contrite and humble spirit. Now, do you think of those who have a contrite and humble spirit as dwelling in the high and lofty place? as dwelling in eternity, as dwelling with the holy God. Do you think of the contrite and the humble as one dwelling with this great, high, and exalted God? That's who God says he dwells with. God says, this is who I spend time with. This is who I'm around. This is my dwelling place is with those who have a contrite and a humble spirit. Contrite means crushed. Contrite here, we're speaking of it, um, not necessarily metaphorically, but 
when you look at the very literal usage of the Hebrew word that we translate as contrite, it literally means like if you were to take a large rock and, and an acorn or corn or something that you find in a field and you just grind it and do a powder and you crush it. That's what it's speaking of, something that is completely crushed. It is broken down. And God says, that's who I dwell with, the contrite ones, the crushed ones. Now, you kind of have to read in between the lines a little bit to understand who he's saying he doesn't dwell with, right? But God abhors the proud. God has nothing to do with the arrogant. His soul detests those who are proud of heart, but he says he dwells with those who are crushed. If you're here this morning and circumstances of life have gotten you to where you're just feeling crushed, well, you know that God's word says that those who realize that they are low, that realize that they have a need, that those who are down, those who are desperate and realize their desperation, those are the ones that God says, I'm, I'm pleased to dwell with those. But it's not just the contrite ones, the crushed ones, but it's the humble, humble of spirit. Humble has to do with, I think, in some ways, thinking of yourself less and others more. That's what Jesus did. That's kind of the picture that we see of him in Philippians 2. And he told us a story a little bit like this where he says, look, if you go to a wedding feast and people are arranged in their seats and in ancient Palestine there would be seats of honor and you would kind of be arranged for the wedding banquet according to your place in society. And Jesus says if you go to a wedding banquet and you're going to go sit down at the feast, don't take the seat of honor. Don't take a seat high up at the head of the table because what if someone comes in that has a better reputation, a better status than you, they're going to look at you and say, um, you need to bump it down a little bit. And what if the other seats are taken to where you have to go all the way down to the bottom end of the table? Jesus said, no, 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 no. Take the seat of humility and wait for someone to see you and say, no, 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 brother. Be exalted. Come and sit up here. And Jesus said, those who seek to exalt themselves will be humbled. But the humble God delights in exalting. The question is, can we succeed can we handle success in life can we handle good things and still remain humble often we think because things have gone right in our lives things have gone well and we've had a measure of success it's so interesting to me we beg and we plead and we ask God to do things in our life and then things go our way and then we like to take the credit for it well look what I have look how great my life has turned out I'm really having a good quiet time. That must be why I'm so blessed, right? We're so quick to do that. But God is saying, that's not who I dwell with. That's not who I dwell with. I dwell with the ones that are crushed like an acorn under a rock. I dwell with those who are humble that, in other words, they have a proper perspective of who they are and who I am, and they're okay with that. And they delight in thinking of others before themselves. God says, this is who I dwell with. But then, why does God dwell with them? Look at the end of verse 15. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the contrite ones. God doesn't come to dwell among the contrite or the humble just to sit around and, and let's all have a pity party and talk about how hard our life is. God says, no, I dwell among them to revive them, to raise them up. 
The word that we translate there as revive literally means to bring back to life. There's an interesting story in 2 Kings 13, 21. The mighty prophet Elisha has died. So Elijah was a great prophet. Elisha received his mantle and did twice as many miracles and was an even greater prophet to some degree. And Elisha has died and they buried him. And there were some people that were on their way to bury another person. And there were raiders from Moab that had come. They saw him on the plains and they thought, oh, okay, we need to take this body of our friend and and hurry and bury this person before these raiders get here. And they ended up throwing this person into the grave of Elijah, Elisha, excuse me. And when this dead person hit the bones of Elisha, the person came back to life and jumped out of the grave. (laughs) Whoa, what happened? I mean, how would that be for a burial service, right? And that's literally what this is talking about, is to bring back to life, to revive. And God is saying, I dwell with the contrite ones and the humble of spirit to revive them, to take what's crushed and to bring it back to life, to take what's broken down and to lift it up, to take what is shattered and repair it, to take the ashes and to bring forth beauty. God is saying, that's why I'm dwelling with them, not just so they can stay in that place of being crushed, Or being brought low, but so they can receive revival. So they can receive new life. You know, when I say revival here, I I know that there's a difference that you can make between revival and awakening. That is, often people talk about revival is among the lost, awakening is among God's people. But I'm talking about it in a broader sense here, that God dwells among the contrite and the humble to take what's messed up. And to put some life into the equation. And that brings us to our first point today. And we're going to begin moving a little quicker. That was a lot of background to set this up. But our first point is this. The heart of God is revival. And again, I'm speaking of a broader sense. God is a God. I want you to just think of your own life. There are situations that seem like they were just not going to turn out right. And God intervened and he brought life to that situation that looked like where it was going to end up as death. Think about your own spiritual life. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian today, what a miracle that is in and of itself. God has called you from death to life. God has taken you who are not a people and made you a people of himself, called by his name, filled with his spirit, forgiven of your sins. That is the work that God has done. Just think about your own salvation for a minute. That's the heart of God. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was what? Lost. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus told three parables about a lost coin, a lost son, and a lost sheep. And each time what was lost was found, there was what? There was great rejoicing. You see, that gives us a picture for the heart of God. God, he sees the brokenness. He sees the contrite ones. He sees the humble. And he says, I've got exactly what they need. I'm the one that can bring life. I'm the one that can turn it around. I am the one that can change it. I'm the one that can do what no one else can do in that situation. And I want you to just stop for a moment and realize and let it sink in 
That really is. And you see in Scripture, there's so many verses I could quote. I threw out a few just now. There are so many verses that support this, that the heart of God is revival. To take what is dead and make it alive. And so you don't have to twist God's hand to do that. You don't have to talk God into being good. You don't have to convince God that today he needs to bring about life. That is where God operates. That is God's desire. That is his go-to. That is where he remains. That is his steady. That is what God does is he brings the dead to life. He brings revival. That is at his core. That it is at his heart. That is why he sent his son was to bring the dead to life. And so I want you to have a little bit of confidence today that you know God, and in knowing God through Jesus Christ as Lord, you know the God whose desire is to bring life from death. That's what he wants. That's what he's working towards. So have a little confidence in that. Now, why don't we see it all the time? That's the real question, right? Why don't we see it if that wayward son or grandson or relative, why don't we see it in that situation that we've been praying about for years that just seems hopeless? Why haven't I seen some of my friends that I grew up with come and put their faith in Christ? Yet I've been praying for some of them for 10, 15, almost 20 years now. Why haven't I seen that fruit yet? Where is that? Why hasn't God brought life in some of those situations? Why don't we just see it all the time? Why is it all automatic? Well, look at verse 16. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the Spirit would fail before me, and the souls which I have made for the iniquity of his covetousness. I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. Let's just stop there for just a minute. Some of these words, God's saying, I'll not contend forever. To contend is to strive, quarrel, brawl, to take legal action against. It's used sometimes of literally a fight, like a fist fight. And God's saying, I won't contend forever with you. Now, why would God be contending at all? Well, if you look again, he says, I was angry. And actually, he says it multiple times that he's angry with his people. He's saying, I won't always be angry with you. You, you couldn't handle it. If I continued to contend against you, if I continued to be angry with you, God's saying, there's only one side to that fight. I win it. God's saying, you'd be crushed if I kept the pressure on you. You couldn't handle it. Here's the thing. Some people are offended when we talk about God's anger. I've even had people that debate with me, well, you know, that's an Old Testament concept. God doesn't get angry. Well, you haven't read the book of Hebrews. Go back and read your Bible some more, then we'll talk. Okay? God does get angry. God hates sin. God hates sin so much, he sent his son to die for it. That's how much he hates it. But here's the thing where usually we mess up. We equate our anger, which is most often inappropriate and selfish, with God's anger, which is pure and holy and righteous. That's the problem. The problem's not that God gets angry, because he does. It's very clear in his word. The problem is we misunderstand what God's anger is about. We think it's like our anger, which usually is very selfish and self-motivated. God's anger is something closer to this, and every illustration breaks down. But suppose your child, who you love, 
who you have raised, who you have invested in, and you have done your best to parent this child, and you love this child, you genuinely, truly love this child, and have a healthy relationship with the child, and this child is making a choice that is going to be harmful to themselves. And the choice that they're making, they are just headlong into it, and they're being stubborn, and you know that the choice they're making is going to cause them harm. You're going to be angry about that. Because you love them. Because you're watching someone that you love do something that harms themselves. And you're going to be angry. You should be angry about it. But it's an anger out of love. Saying, I'm angry that this is taking place, that you would cause harm to yourself through this choice. You see, it's an anger that's born out of love. Again, every illustration breaks down at some point, but we must understand that's at the heart of God's anger is his love for his people. He's looking at us knowing sin is harmful for you, my people, and I'm angry that you're choosing something that is destroying you. You see, that's behind the anger of God. So he says, I'm not going to contend with you forever. I'm not going to be angry forever. He's saying you, you couldn't handle it. But what's he angry about? The iniquity of his covetousness. That's kind of a mouthful in it. Verse 17, the iniquity of his covetousness. At the heart of the issue is the people were not trusting God to be sufficient. They said, yeah, we've got God, but they began to worship the nation's idols around them. They said, yes, we have God, but... We need this, that, and the other. Yes, we have God, but we need this as well. The covetousness is seeing something else that God's not intended for you to have, but you think you should have it. And so no matter what it is, you go get it, even though it's not God's will for you. And God's saying, my people, you're not trusting me. You're not walking in a relationship with me. You're in this iniquity, this sin of covetousness. And you're engaging in these things that are harmful for you. They're not what I have. And then if you go on, he, he talks about God how he was angry and he struck them. And then he's saying his people went on backsliding. They didn't get it. They didn't turn around. They just kept going because their hearts weren't right. It's like Lot's wife who God says, look, leave the city, run, and don't turn around. Don't turn back. And Lot's wife, what? Her heart hadn't left the city she turned back. Her heart was still in the city, and she turned into a pillar of salt right there. She disobeyed God's voice. She wasn't trusting God. She wasn't moving forward with God. Her heart was still back there. And God's saying, look, their covetousness, their sin, their backsliding heart, I'm doing everything I can, God is saying, to break them of this. But they're persisting in it. And then at the end of verse 17, again, he makes it clear. He says, in the way of his what? In the way of his heart. So again, all of this, it comes down to an issue of the heart. And all of my years of ministry, especially working with teens and youth, having parents or grandparents to come to me with a behavior issue going on in the life of their child. And... And when I sit down and I visit with them, 
usually what I'm able to uncover is that there's a behavior issue that is going on, but that's just the symptom. There's a root that has to be uncovered. There's an issue of the heart that's going on, and that behavior is just what you see on the surface. And while you can put boundaries in place, and while you can put things in place to help kids learn obedience, and they need sometimes to just learn obedience for obedience' sake, that if you don't deal with the issue of the heart, the root remains. And eventually it keeps springing up and springing up and springing up, and you'll see the fruit of that disobedience. And God's saying we've got to deal with the issue of the heart. That brings us to our second point this morning. The heart of man is rebellion. Isn't that uplifting? You're ready to leave right now. Point two, see you later. You got it. But if we need to understand that the heart of God is revival, we must also understand that the heart of man is rebellion. We need to quit making excuses for it quit minimizing it, quit comparing ourselves to one another, and just understand the depths of the human heart. Isaiah 1, I want you to see God's perspective on it. Isaiah 1, verses 2 through 9, here's God, like I said, almost just kind of throwing up his hand saying, what else can I do with you? Isaiah 1, beginning at verse 2, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. God's saying, I've done everything for you you could want, and you've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people don't consider. He's like an animal knows its master. My people aren't heeding me. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away backward. God's heart's breaking here, speaking of his people. Verse 5, look, why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. God's saying, there's no sense in me whooping you anymore because you just persist in your sin. It's like it's not doing any good. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate as Overthrown by strangers, so the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant. We would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. Again, God is saying, look, I'm dealing with you as children that I love. I'm disciplining you. I'm trying to deal with the issue of your heart, but you just keep persisting in your rebellion. And really the first step to addressing this rebellion in your heart is we have to come clean about it. We have to acknowledge it. We have to realize that, yeah, that's not just true of the person sitting next to me or somebody else who I'm thinking of. That's true of me. The heart of my hearts is rebellion. I wrestle with that every day, and I need to understand that. I need to accept it. I need to own it. I need to understand that it is only by the grace of God and the empowerment of His Holy Spirit that I have any chance to live anything other than rebellion against a holy God. 
We saw this sadly as it came out this last week with Rabbi Zacharias. I'm not trying to kick anybody while they're down. I mean, he's already dead. He's gone. But this was a man that was arguably the greatest Christian apologetic of, apologist of his generation. Had a great international worldwide ministry. And for years, I'm sure he was a man of integrity. But later in life, he had all of this power, this power unchecked. He had no accountability. And he began to use his power to abuse the women around him. And he became a predator in his later years in ministry. And after his funeral, it's just come out more and more and more and more the sin that was the real story to the last years of his life. And the downfall of that is now there's this international ministry that had supplied jobs to dozens and dozens of Christians in many different countries, helping equip the church to defend the faith. And now that ministry is all but shut down because they can't use the name of this predator anymore. This is a man that for years had a great name, a great ministry. We must understand that the heart of man is rebellion. In fact, there's a whole part of psychology <laughs> that's built around this. Even um, humanist psychologists understand the rebellious heart of man because there is a part of psychology that you've probably heard of, you know, and you've probably even used with your kids called what? Reverse psychology. What's at the basis of reverse psychology? The basis of reverse psychology is that your heart is so rebellious, if I tell you to do something, your automatic is to do the opposite. So there is a system of philosophy and psychology and counseling that are designed to deal with the rebellion of the human heart that is its natural state. So if I was counseling a young man and I knew that this young man's grandfather was about to die and he was um, having maybe a, a rocky relationship with his grandfather. But I knew that if he didn't visit his grandfather before he died, he'd regret it later in life. But, but I knew I couldn't come at him directly. I would use reverse psychology on him. And I'd say, well, you know, I mean, your relationship with your grandfather is really not any good and he's about to pass away. I just don't think you could handle going to visit him. I just don't think you could handle that. I don't think you're equipped to do that. I don't think it'd be a good idea. What's that young man going to do? He's not going to tell me I can't handle nothing. I'm going to visit Grandpa this afternoon, right? That's the rebellion of the human heart. We have a whole system of psychology and counseling that acknowledges that, okay, people are rebellious, so let's just talk them into doing things using their rebellious side. <laughs> the heart of man is rebellious. At some point, we need to just acknowledge this. So, again, we've got to close with the hope. We have the first two parts down, but let's bring it to an end. Where's the hope? What do we do about it? Do we just walk out here, you know, kind of Charlie Brown it? Well, I'm just, you know, some sorry sucker that's rebellious and I have no hope. Is that it? Go out and do ye likewise. Be blessed, church, right? Is that it? No. Where's the hope? 
How do we overcome this? How do we live something better than this? How do we live with this holy God who wants to dwell with the contrite ones, the humble ones? Where's the hope? We'll look at the last few verses of our passage today, and we'll bring it to a close. Isaiah 57, verses 18 through 21. Great verbs here. I have seen his ways. God sees you. He knows you. Nothing's hidden from him. And look at what God does in seeing you in your rebellion and will what? Heal him. I will also what? Lead him. And what? Restore comforts to him. God says, I see you. And in your rebellion and in your sin, I choose to heal I choose to lead. I choose to restore comforts to him and to his mourners. I, what, create. God's going to do something new. The fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord. And I will, what, heal. I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea. When it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So we understand that God's heart is to bring life, to revive. Why doesn't it happen with everybody? Because we don't receive it. Our hearts are rebellious. We don't accept it. We don't embrace the work that God is doing. So where is the hope? Well, the hope is found in this, my third and final point. The heart of God is the hope of man. Your confidence is not in your ability to clean yourself up, but that there is a God who has not given up on you yet. And that's our hope. That every day he persists in love, that every day he persists in mercy, that every day God is persisting in seeking you out and finding you and drawing you near. Our hope is in the tenacity of the love of God. The heart of God is the hope of man. Look at those verbs, great verbs. I will heal, God says. I will lead, God says. I will restore. I will create. I will heal. Now, does that absolve us of our responsibilities? That, okay, well, then God's going to do all the heavy lifting. No, remember, prepare the way. Remove the stumbling block. Look, if God is drawing you today, if God is convicting you today, if God is doing something in your heart, your responsibility is to be quick to obey. That's your part. That's your part. Don't delay. Be quick to obey. And what God will do, I love that word create. God can actually create in you a new heart. God can take sin that was once appealing to you and make it to where you don't care about it anymore. God can take a direction that you're going in your life that you think you've got to have and all of a sudden it's just not appealing at all. I can't believe I once wanted to do that. I can't believe that's what I thought my life needed to be about. How many of you would like to change somebody's heart and you realize you just can't do it, right? God can, and he does every single day. To all who will come to him, to all who will respond to him. God is changing hearts. He is changing desires. He is changing. He is creating something new. And what's he creating? He's creating peace. I love that. This word peace, it's the Hebrew word shalom. It speaks 
of welfare, a state of health, prosperity, success, intactness. It's much more than just the concept of peace we understand. It is a concept of wholeness. God is saying, I'm going to take you. This is so great. I love the Hebrew here. God is going to take you who are contrite, broken down, ground to a pulp. God is going to take you who are humble, who are beaten to the dirt, and he's going to lift you up, and he's going to give you peace, shalom. He's going to make you whole and complete. You see the imagery there? from being crushed to whole. And only God can do that because God made you and he knows how to do it. So bringing this to a close, the last couple verses uh, are a warning for us, really. Verse 20, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Now, how are the wicked defined? Here, you would really define all of us as wicked because our hearts are sinful and rebellious before God. But the difference between these two groups is just one thing. One has responded to God and received the healing and the leadership and has received the creation of a new heart, and the other has persisted in their own way. That's it. That's the only difference. And when it comes down to it, that's where all of us are as well. There's nothing in your spiritual life where 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, you'll be able to look back and say, I finally earned it. God, I was sure worth it, wasn't I? You realize how foolish that is. The only difference between you and the person that is sleeping off an all-nighter from a bar last night is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's the only difference. The only reason I'm here today and not dead in the gutter somewhere is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. So today, the question becomes, will we respond? Knowing that the heart of God is revival, that is where all my confidence lies. My confidence not in myself. My heart is rebellious, so I can't put my confidence there. I have to find something else. And when I understand that the heart of God is revival, I can solely place my confidence in him. And I can know that his tenacious love is pursuing me day after day after day. So this morning, how will you respond to him? Will you receive him this morning? Will you be quick to obey him this morning? Will you place your confidence in him and, and thank him? God, thank you that you're doing the work in my heart that I don't even know I need done. There are things going into my life today that I don't even realize I need you to make me more Christ-like in these areas, but you know it, and so I give you thanks, Lord, that in your goodness, you're making me more like Jesus in ways that I didn't even need to know I needed to get made that way. And so this morning, can we with confidence say, Lord, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you pursue me. Thank you that in my rebellion, you see me. You see me who I am. You see me how I am. And you choose to heal me, to lead me, to guide me, to create in me something new. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Or will you today take everything that I've said and said, I don't want that. God's promise to you, if you reject him, is you will not have peace. And God always keeps his word.
So for you to reject the one who gives peace is to remain in a state of turmoil, not only for this life, but throughout all eternity. To spend a lifetime rejecting God, you know what God's justice will be on judgment day? As to say, for spending a lifetime rejecting me, now you can be apart from me forever. That's hell, is to be separated from God forever. But that's not the heart of God. The heart of God is revival. And so today, if God is drawing, today is your day to respond. To say, I believe there is a God who sent his son Jesus to die for my rebellion in my place on the cross. That as I put my faith in him, the one who not only died but rose again, I can be forgiven. Not because of my works, but because of Jesus. And so in Jesus' name, Heavenly Father, forgive me. Cleanse me and create in me something new today. That can be your story today before you leave this place. That can be true of you. I'm going to bring us to a time of, of prayer, and then I have one more thing after I pray before we close this out. But I'm going to ask you if you could bow your head and close your eyes with me and as a way of focusing in on, on the Lord. And, and I want to ask you today, have you ever turned from your way and truly trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you? Have you truly taken up God's way Putting your faith on him. Casting yourself upon him. If that's not true of you, then today respond to God. Be quick to respond to him. By faith, you tell God what's in your heart. We're saved by faith. By faith, tell him, dear God, I, yes, I confess my heart is rebellion. I've sinned against you and I can't save myself. But you've sent your son, Jesus, to save me, to die in my place for my rebellion, for my sin. And I ask you now, because of Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Save me. I cast myself upon you. I believe in you. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving my soul. The church today is, um, close our prayer. I, if I haven't accomplished anything else, I hope that somehow I have given you some greater confidence in the goodness of God. That you really can cast yourself upon him. His heart is to revive. Lord Jesus, we trust you to do what only you can do. And we ask you to forgive us for the ways we fight you. Forgive us for the ways we fight your heart which is to bring life. Forgive us for the ways that we persist in our sin and we stay backslidden. And give us hearts that are quick to yield to your loving embrace. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.